it never ceases to amaze me how many times I can read the same scripture and yet see new details each time. I mean, here we are in, in the one text you think we'd all know, inside out and back to front. And, and you know, I don't know about you, but for me, there were quite a few details here that, that just kind of hit me in a fresh way when I read through this passage during the week. And I think there's a couple of reasons that the Bible kind of does that all the time. The first one is, the basic problem, I think, is, is probably that we just don't actually read God's word enough. Not as often nor as carefully as we like to think we do. But then in our defense, I guess, the, the scripture is actually just mysteriously like that, isn't it? it? It's alive, this text. And it speaks to us afresh from one day to the next. The Bible's not like other books. The, the Holy Spirit uses this word to, to draw out new treasures for us every time we come to it. And our re-reading of scripture is, you know, it's rewarded just like our first reading was. Anyway, let me just share with you some of the details that, for reasons I don't even know, that they just seem to pop out at me in this passage that we've just read in Matthew 27. Verse 30, have a look at verse 30. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. I mean, I've obviously read that before many times, but somehow that picture of, of them whipping Jesus' head with a reed has never really lodged in my mind in amongst all the other details going on. Here verse 55. Verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. I don't know why, but just that one word, ministering, really jumped off the page at me. <laughs> These women have been serving and caring for Jesus all this time since Galilee, serving in the background, ministering to him. But Matthew now brings them into the foreground with that verse. Another nice detail, just down a little bit further in verse 59, caught my, caught my eye. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. Clean linen. What a beautiful image that was, suddenly, that I saw. Clean linen after reading through the absolutely disgusting and violent and, and bloodied ordeal that this was for Jesus. Joseph took his body and wrapped him in clean linen. How about verses 52 and 53? The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I mean, I knew about that one already because it's just so epic. But it struck me as if new, with, with so much more impact this time as I read through, because, well, because it's so epic. Tombs were broken open and dead people were raised to life. It's, it's like I somehow just hadn't fully grasped how monumental that is. Dead people raised and going into town and appearing to people there. And I thought, you know, as I read that, it's almost like the good news of chapter 28 that we're waiting for. The good news is kind of breaking backwards into Matthew's awful narrative here in chapter 27, like, like a ray of light uh, finding its way through a, a dark room back to where we are. It's just such a dark passage of scripture. It was such a little beautiful glimpse, that ray of light. And at that point, I started to reflect on, 
on Matthew's perspective. Matthew's perspective. It's one of four gospel accounts that we have on the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's another reason things, I think, keep popping out of Scripture at us. You know, there's four of these Gospels in the Bible, and, and each one's got different angles on things. So I guess that makes it a bit harder for us to kind of keep all of that organized in our, in our minds. And, and so maybe we compensate, you know, by locking onto some things more than we process other things. I don't know. But it's actually a wonderful thing, isn't it, that we do have those four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the different perspectives that they've each got on Jesus, well, they actually all work together, don't they, to give such a rich and detailed kind of picture of of all of this. So much so that I realised as I worked through this passage, and I want to say, I think it's vital that we read across all four of these Gospels and, and keep reading them and working through them so that our understanding of Jesus just keeps growing and growing. Let me give you a few examples of how these four Gospels work together. In verse 40, people are passing by Jesus and insulting him and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Now that reminds us of the false witnesses that were brought against Jesus that we looked at last week in chapter 26 and verse 61. Two false witnesses came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The thing is, though, that's actually actually a distortion of something Jesus did say. But for that we have to go over to John's Gospel. It's in John chapter 2 and verse 19, and it's after Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple, Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus actually said that the Jews would destroy the temple. He would be the one who raises it. But as John then goes on to explain, Jesus had actually been talking about the temple of his own body. And here in Matthew 27, the Jews now are destroying Jesus' own body while they stand around deriding him in, in their catastrophic misunderstanding of his prophecy. The irony is just awful. So too in verse 40 there, and again in verse 43, Jesus' accusers say that he said, I am the Son of God. But in actual fact, Jesus himself hasn't actually said that in in Matthew's gospel, as far as Matthew recorded things. Only other people have been calling Jesus the Son of God in Matthew's gospel. His disciples on, on a couple of occasions, and now at the end here, his persecutors are saying it. And so too, in the middle, Matthew has been recording that title for Jesus coming from the mouths of demons and the devil, too, if you recall James's sermon for us a couple, couple of weeks back on chapter 4. Actually, his persecutors now sound just like the devil in chapter 4, taunting him, if you are the son of God, do such and such. Anyway, if we were to search Matthew, we wouldn't find Jesus saying that he is the son of God. But if we search across the four Gospels, we see that, yes, actually, Jesus did, in fact, use this title of himself. So verse 40 here in Matthew actually makes perfect sense of what we know of Jesus and his life and ministry. Jesus had actually claimed that title of himself, Son of God, even though Matthew himself hasn't recorded it in his Gospel. You see what I'm saying? The the four accounts 
they work together. E- each gospel's got a certain perspective on the events, but the context as a whole really starts to become richer and, and really starts coming together w- when we read each of those different perspectives by, you know, by being frequently in all four of those gospels. And this then helps us catch verse 44, where from Matthew's perspective, the robbers crucified beside Jesus were also heaping insults on him. From Luke's account, we know too that one of those robbers eventually appealed to Jesus for mercy and was taken to be with Jesus in paradise. It seems that that robber was completely transformed on the cross, converted to belief in the middle of that six hours that Jesus was on the cross beside him. What a great day for that man. Converted and saved. And at the time of Matthew's observing, though, or from Matthew's perspective, painting a, a broader brushstroke here, the important sense he wanted to capture that was that you know abuse was coming at Jesus from every direction, even from those hanging beside him, condemned and executed in their guilt. And in fact, I think that sense, that that sense of all the evil around Jesus actually explains Matthew's whole perspective. In these suffering chapters of 26 last week and now 27 this week, all the evil around Jesus seems to be Matthew's perspective. Jesus himself is quite in the background, if you think about it, quite in the background of Matthew's angle. Like, you know, a passive figure in the narrative by whom Matthew can just keep drawing out the scope and scale of the wickedness. In verse 11, 12, 13, 14, Jesus is again quiet, quiet, and choosing to stay silent against all of this evil. Same as we saw last week in chapter 26, nothing but you say in verse 11, you say. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And in fact, that's all Matthew records from Jesus' lips in this whole chapter, until the point of death in verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And another loud cry, verse 50, as he yields his spirit and dies. Nothing to say, really. His persecutors, in very stark contrast, have had much to say, and much evil to say at that. And Matthew has given them the the airtime to say it. But Jesus himself is rather in the background, isn't he, of Matthew's focus? And so Matthew doesn't take us either into Jesus' shoes, so to speak, to see up close, you know, what, what was going on for Jesus physically and emotionally in all this. You'd have to go to John's Gospel for that. Matthew's more focused on all the various things that the other people are doing. You know, the reeds and the spitting and washing hands and dressing Jesus and mocking and wine and gall and, and more reeds and sponges, and more sour wine, and kneeling, and casting lots, and dividing his clothes, and sitting, and watching, and so on, and so on. 
even the crucifixion of Jesus itself is not really in focus. Matthew only mentions the cross as as something they would do, verse 31, and then past tense had done, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting a lot. That's it, verse 35. Matthew's coverage of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has no real detail of the cross or the event itself. No image of Jesus' suffering, just that at some point, It had been done. And that mention of it in verse 35 just seems to serve as a kind of time marker in Matthew's narrative. And when they had crucified him, linking straight back to all the other things going on around Jesus that Matthew's so keen to tell us, because that's where his perspective is focused. There's no doubt to my mind with Matthew's focus on on everyone around Jesus that we're, we're supposed to, for one thing, catch the great injustice here that's being perpetrated against him. Notice in verse 18 and again in verse 23, Jesus' innocence is, is officially known by Pilate, the governor, who has all the power here. For he knew, verse 18, that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. In verse 23 he said, Why? What evil has he done? None is the answer. There's no guilt, there's no logic, there's no reason here, but they shouted all the more. Let him be crucified. Mob mentality is contagious, and it can get out of hand very quickly. And and here, in Matthew 27, insurrection wins the day, 24, because when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning... He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Can you even imagine? Matthew is showing us such darkness here around Jesus, staggering culpability taken on by the crowds after being stirred up by the religious leaders. His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Matthew has made very sure across these couple of chapters that that we see very clearly Jesus should not have been arrested nor tried nor executed like this, except for the conspiring of wicked men who rejected him the way they did. They claim down in, in verses 40 through to 44 that, you know, if Jesus comes down from the cross now, well then they'll accept him and, and believe. Matthew's narrative hasn't really given us any confidence in them in their character, to think that they really would have believed, even if he did. thing is, though, all, all that that snideful demand reveals is that none of these people have any idea as to why Jesus is really there on the cross. Other than, you know, because they conspired to put him there. But Jesus has submitted to that process, and only he seems to understand why. And because of Matthew's particular angle on all this, you know, what with Jesus quietly in the background, 
Matthew hasn't given us anything to latch on to as to the why of all this. There's no explanation here. There's no theology of the cross given to us here. So how are we supposed to understand from this text why Jesus dies? Well, that's where we come back to that point of reading across the scriptures. Have you noticed, by the way, that that most of what Jesus has had to say all through this, over these couple of chapters we've been looking at, (laughs) has actually been either to refer people to the scriptures or otherwise just plain quote the scriptures to them. Much like he did in chapter 4 when the devil came after him. So too, Jesus' last words here that Matthew records for us in verse 46 are actually a blunt quote from Scripture. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Strikes us as mysterious, or as confusing even, that that Jesus should call out like this when when he has so willingly submitted to it all. But in actual fact, his last words are straight out of Scripture. In Psalm 22. Jesus has endured so much abuse here, as Matthew's shown us. But he's had so little to say. So little to say. Why do you think Jesus would be pointing us to Psalm 22 with these dying words? Well, let's go there and see. Let's go there and see. It's in, it's in the Church Bibles on, on page 457. Psalm 22. To the choir master... According to the Doe of the Dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's Jesus' dying words in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, straight out of Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27 was first written by King David in Psalm 22. Everything we've just been trying to map our way through in Matthew 27, all of that darkness, it was no surprise to Jesus. These things had been written into Scripture a a thousand years earlier. It's just that nobody knew that this was what that old song, Psalm 22, was about. Jesus tells us with his dying words there in Matthew 27, 46, that he knew exactly what was going on and what it was like from his perspective. I can't help wondering if he's also telling us with those last words to go and read the scriptures ourselves. And to go and read across all of scripture if we want to understand these things. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus claimed to be central to scripture, that the Old Testament had had been written about him and, and that he, coming and dying like this, fulfilled God's great promises to us in the scriptures. Turn with me there now if you can. Luke chapter 24. It's on page 885 of the Church Bibles. Luke 24 verses 44 to 48. And, and this is the risen Jesus. And he explains his death and his resurrection like this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, and rising from the dead, which we intend to get to next week in Matthew 28, these things were necessary, and they were written into God's scriptures, as we just actually saw for ourselves in Psalm 22. So this cross is fundamental to the whole Bible story. Of that much we can be sure. And Matthew, I suspect, is content to make no theological commentary here because he's actually been pointing us all along to the rest of Scripture as he writes this Gospel. In other words, Matthew wants us to go and search the Scriptures and study the Scriptures and seek Jesus and and find promise and fulfillment and closure all through God's Word. 
what Jesus himself said in those couple of sentences in, in Luke 24. Matthew's been saying all through his gospel since the first page. The Old Testament scriptures promise the things that Jesus would fulfill. And so I return to my point. We, we must be immersed in God's word if we're going to come to a full knowledge of God and his promises and his desires for us. And it's all going to centre around Jesus and this cross in Matthew 27 and this uh, resurrection, of course, that's coming in chapter 28. But we haven't got time today, have we, to search the whole Bible? So I wondered, you know, since Matthew's not made a theological comment here, how can I best capture this this heart of the gospel for you? You know, the why of Jesus dying here in, in Matthew 27. I thought, well, there's, you know, there's really there's no end of scriptures I could go to to help us unpack it together because it is so central. We know from Matthew's narrative through chapter 26 and 27 that it most certainly was not for Jesus' own sin that he died on the cross. We can be very sure of that. His innocence couldn't have been captured more thoroughly by Matthew. And so why did he die? If I was to read to you a simple verse like Galatians 3.13, that's the one that jumped to my mind as I read through this this awful narrative here in in Matthew 27. That would give us the alternative and the explanation. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We could unpack that and explore that, and we would see that it was for us and for our sin that Jesus died on the cross. And that's where I actually intended to, to go today. I, I fully intended, as I sat down to prepare this sermon, that we, you know, we should be able to get right into the mechanism of, of atonement that's going on at the cross in this epic and dramatic chapter of Matthew 27. But in fact, we might come back to that level of answer and, and that kind of perspective, and and look again at that verse in Galatians, maybe, when we share communion together in a few moments. Because as I sat down to work through Matthew 27 for this sermon, with that question in the back of my mind, you know, why Jesus died, Matthew actually took me to a whole different dimension on that question, a whole different dimension on the answer. And so did Jesus. So I feel like we ought to honour Jesus' dying words here and finish the rest of that psalm, Psalm 22. That's what Jesus directed us to in these final words here, didn't he? So turn back with me on page 458 in Psalm 22 and see what else is there for us. First thing we see is that there's a turning point. Where where we left off in the psalm at verse 19, we'll pick it up there, there's a a turning point coming here. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Just a curious little upturn there in the mood in verse 21, hinting, hinting, I believe, at the resurrection that Jesus knows is coming. And he actually promised his disciples back in Matthew 26. He knows that this isn't going to end with death. He has been rescued. 
And then we start to get into the big picture then of, of why Jesus dies on the cross, according to Psalm 22 at least, on behalf of his brothers and sisters, verse 22. On behalf of his brothers and sisters, whom he restores to God. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Jesus knows his cry has been heard by God. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And his brothers and sisters, who who he's winning such life and joy for on this ugly cross, are, are not just the people of Israel. They're people spread across the face of the whole earth. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The why of Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27 is pointing to a a cosmic answer. Jesus has just made one perfect sacrifice for all time, so that everyone from from any nation at at any time and place on earth who who becomes Jesus' brother or sister will be brought into a life of worship of the Lord under his kingship, and their hearts will live forever. He has done it. Let's pray, and then we'll share that bread and wine. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures to us that we discover here have promised uh, all the way through about this cross on which Jesus died. Help us and teach us as we continue to explore that across scripture, as we keep opening up your scriptures in, in our lives. We thank you that Jesus has pointed us here to Psalm 22 in these final moments, these final words on the cross, pointed us to a very cosmic picture as to why he is there on that cross, to trigger your praise across the face of this earth and life for your people whom he saves. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.